You can't just choose to be a good critical thinker any more than you can choose to play the violin or choose to speak a foreign language. These are skills that need to be acquired and they are only acquired with time and effort and practice. And once you have acquired these skills, you have to practice and hone and refine those skills. So it does take time. It does take a little bit of investment, but it is the most valuable investment that you'll ever make. Hey guys, welcome back. Drew and Alex here. We've got a, a really good, a, re- a really interesting episode lined up today, diving into some some critical thought around sports science. Yeah, this is a cool one. The way we got interested in hosting Dr. Nicholas Tiller was because of a call to action paper he published about the need for exercise scientists to contest the growing amount of misinformation in the space, which we address all the time on this platform. Nick is a senior researcher at the Lundquist Institute of Exercise Physiology and Respiratory Medicine that's at the Harbor UCLA Medical Center. Tiller has a broad research profile with numerous peer-reviewed studies in cardiopulmonary function, specifically in chronic respiratory disease, respiratory mechanics, and exercise limitation. He's a leading authority on the physiology and pathophysiology of extreme exercise, and part of this is because of his personal interest in ultramarathon running, to include like competing in an ultramarathon through the Sahara Desert. Dude's a savage. He is also an associate editor of the International Journal of Sports Nutrition and Exercise Metabolism. I personally bought a copy of his book, Skeptic's Guide to Sports Science, which has been reviewed as one of the best sports science books of all time. And it's definitely an easy kind of reference document for some of the common myths out there. If you don't want to get the book, you can also go to his column on Skeptical Inquirer, where he covers a lot of the same topics. But as Drew mentioned, while we cover a lot of ground on exercise science-specific stuff, Nick also just has a broader interest in critical thinking generally and how we train people on it and its role in our schools and the problems that come from a lack of it. So a really, really cool deep dive on applying critical thinking to issues mostly focused on exercise science. Yeah, I think you mentioned it. His his website, his book, Nick's one of those guys that really, I guess, prides him, himself on not taking things at face value. And it's something that you'll hear us dive into. We we spend a lot of time discussing pseudoscience around the exercise science space. We talk about the post-truth society and kind of what that means. So a lot of a lot of information that I think is relevant not only to our normal talking points around health, wellness, and fitness, but really just how to how to navigate today's world in general. So Like you said, a really interesting episode, a really enjoyable one, and it definitely opened up a lot of doors that we want to dive into in the future. So enjoy. I'm I'm kind of fascinated now that you turned me on to this. Yeah, so it's a lot of details. So it was a British guy (laughs) who came up with this this kind of device that could detect landmines based on frequencies or something. He he bought novelty golf ball detectors. For, That's right. For twenty bucks each, and then sold them as bomb detectors for five thousand dollars each. Wait, what does a novelty golf ball detector do? I, I What's mean, a novelty golf ball? I, I, I <laughs> <laughs> But like they they talk about like the court case and stuff. Like he showed absolutely no shame whatsoever, despite the fact that it's not based on anything at all. Um, they they said the unavoidable conclusion is that like people did die as a result of this. 
Has anyone, okay, here we go. In the world of sports science that you're familiar with, has anyone died based on uh, pseudoscience? Unquestionably, yes. And, and we, I can give you some specific examples from mainstream media, from the scientific literature. It's not necessarily from the world of health, from, from sport and uh, from performance sport. But when we talk about the, the, the widespread prevalence of pseudoscience in health and fitness, it has downstream implications for all facets of society. So let me give you a very brief example. Uh, I always go straight to uh, Michael Phelps and his endorsement of cupping because it's kind of low-hanging fruit, but it's oh, just yep. a perfect example of the kind of consequences that, that can be wrought from, from somebody inadvertently promoting these kinds of things. So Michael Phelps, for those who somehow don't know who he is, is the most famous, uh, most successful Olympian of all time, not just the most successful swimmer, the most successful Olympic athlete of all time, won countless gold medals across multiple Olympics. And on his Instagram account, uh, on several different several different occasions, he was seen having cupping therapy, which is a, an ancient Chinese therapy. It's widely considered a pseudoscience. It's been scientifically discredited. And I, I won't go into the details of the treatment, but essentially it only works in the context of placebo. It's been extensively studied. Now, on the one hand, he and other athletes and lots of swimmers now, believe it or not, are using this thing because it helps to supposedly helps to facilitate recovery, reduce muscle soreness and that kind of thing, again, in the context of placebo. But if you go onto the British cupping therapy website, they promote cupping as a as a treatment for asthmatic symptoms. Right. Now, we're starting to get a little bit on thin ice here because you don't want to start treating an asthma attack with cupping therapy because it's not going to be effective. More often than not, if somebody has asthmatic symptoms, they need an inhaler, they need some kind of bronchodilator to open up the airways. And you can take that same idea of downstream implications in any kind of pseudoscience, whether it's a supplement that has a placebo effect or complementary and alternative medicine. It's fine if you can restrict these things to use only in performance sport because the worst case scenario an athlete takes it and they don't perform like they expected to okay it's a shame it's not the end of the world but with things like cupping with acupuncture with homeopathy other more kind of mainstream pseudosciences or alternative therapies some people use these therapies to treat potentially very serious health problems you know, meningitis, for example, there's a case, there was a case in the media where the parents were naturopaths and they tried to treat their very, very sick child with uh, with naturopathic remedies and the, the poor kid got, died. And, and there, there are these cases that are reported very broadly in the, in the mainstream media and in scientific case studies as well. So we've got to think that it's not just about exercise and performance. It has implications there, but it's the downstream clinical consequences that people often don't think about. Is there, and we were, Alex and I were talking about this a little bit earlier, but should there, or is there some sort of like ethical consideration that goes into the decision-making on behalf of the athletes? Because I mean, I remember Michael Phelps, you know, doing his arm stretched, you know, leaning over and he's just covered in the cupping stuff. And I mean, I'm either he knows that it doesn't work or he's convinced that it does, but surely there's conversations happening just based on how many people are going to see that and follow it and believe it if you know it's wrong. Yeah, and this is kind of the problem because every elite athlete, or, or certainly in the West, uh, elite athletes all, all over the West, in, in the US, in, in Europe as well, they are supported not just by a coach, but by a, usually a team of 
scientists and the English system, or I should say the British system is based on the Australian system, the Australian Institute of Sport. We set up the English Institute of Sport, which is the same model. It works slightly differently in the US and Canada, but essentially these elite athletes have not just a head coach, but they have a medical doctor or a sports physician. They have a nutritionist, a physiologist, a psychologist, some kind of performance lifestyle advisor, strength and conditioning coach. So when one of these athletes tries something that we know doesn't work, that we know only works in the context of placebo, everyone has had to sign off on this. It's not like, it's very rarely that the athlete is just going off on their own and, and doing their own thing. Everybody is signing off on this on the basis that, well, if it doesn't work, then at least the athlete might get some kind of psychological edge. And that's not to be scoffed at, right? But if you give an athlete a sugar pill that, that isn't going to improve performance, but they think it's going to improve performance. Mm -hmm. So there's an expectation, there's a belief that, it, that they're going to perform better. That has really profound implications because placebo is has very powerful psychobiological effects. But... Uh, as we've said, there is, you have to kind of think about your intellectual integrity because you have to, number one, lie to the athlete. You have to deceive them into thinking that this thing works when you know that it doesn't. And the second thing, as we've already discussed, there could be implications in other facets of society. So it's like, how do you balance those two things? I think it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. I think there's a huge challenge in it too like particularly in this like internet social media era, a huge percentage of athletes, depending on the sport, it's a little bit different in some of the more established pro sports, but a, a large number of athletes, the only way for them to make serious money, like a, a, able to sustain a normal lifestyle money even is from endorsements, from having a huge social media presence from things like that. And, and having played in the social media circles a little bit, you learn really quickly that truth is not rewarded with engagement. Like lots of things are rewarded with engagement. Truth is not one of them. Right. Right. Nope. And th this has been extensively studied. We know that, that uh, fake news, for example, spreads much further, farther and deeper in, uh, on social media than the truth in all aspects, in all categories, whether it's health, health policy, politics, you know, whatever it happens to be. And that's because th this thing is sensationalized. People would prefer to share something that goes against the grain rather than the boring scientific study, which confirms kind of what we already knew. People would much rather share something that is that is unique and especially something that's emotive. So going back to your point, you know, this idea that athletes are often endorsed to promote certain products online. And sometimes they have to because in, in the US, an athlete, even if they win a gold medal at the Olympics, they get about $42,000, $43,000 for a gold medal. And then it obviously gets progressively lower for silver and bronze medal. They don't medal, they don't get any payout. So they're kind of either they're working two jobs or they are relying on this sponsorship. So if they have a large social media following, athletes in the UK don't get any money for a gold medal. So sometimes they're forced into this corner where a company comes to them and says, okay, wear this colorful neon tape across your shoulders and back and let us take some photos and we'll pay you X number of dollars. That's kind of difficult for an athlete to turn down. And the other issue is that these things are not transparently advertised online. That's something like one third of individuals who put sponsored posts on Instagram, for example, 
do not, obviously you're, you're legally obliged to state that it's a sponsored post and one third of individuals don't put that put that in the small print. They, they don't tag that it's a sponsored post. So people are looking at these things thinking that the athlete is just endorsing it because it's a product they believe in, not knowing actually that they're, that they're getting paid for the endorsement. How do you, and this is one thing I was thinking about when I read your, your sort of call to action paper, because on the one hand, you, and I think rightly so, you're asking an industry to to fight this pseudoscience, false information, all this stuff. But you could also argue that a lot of that hype is what drives money towards the bottom line for the entire industry. So like, I guess the question there is how do you, how do you balance that out? Well, and this is the, th- I mean, the, in- the health and wellness in- industry hinges on this idea that there are simple solutions to complex problems, whether whether it's fad diets or supplements or magic magic sneakers or or a, a gim- any kind of gimmick or gadget, it's this idea that if we invest in this strategy, it's going to expedite our health and wellness goals, and that's where the vast majority of the money comes from. I mean, there are something like twenty. I think that the last count there were twenty to twenty five thousand different supplements on the market and if you read any of the position stands by expert nutritionists and dietitians they'll say that there's good solid evidence to support maybe five six different Mm -hmm. supplements to improve strength endurance power whatever it happens to be you know creatine for example has been well researched since the early 1990s protein supplements, beta alanine, these things have a pretty good body of research. The vast majority of these things don't work. I mean, carnitine has been sold as a fat burner for decades. It's the basis of a fat burning industry, really multi-million dollar industry. And decades of research has shown that it doesn't do anything. It's It's not even possible under most normal conditions to increase the muscle concentration of carnitine. So... Um, but, but this is the, it comes back to this whole point that there's no regulation. So how do we balance those two things? Uh, I think really, when you think about what the potential consequences are of people believing in products that don't work, then I I think the answer becomes pretty clear. I mean, I'd like to ask you guys, you know, if you, if you could give a a supplement or, or if you could give a placebo to a military recruit and say, look, this, this pill, knowing that it's a sugar pill, that it does nothing. You know, it's sodium chloride, it's a salt tablet. And you tell the individual that it's going to make them stronger and faster. It's going to increase their work capacity and it's going to reduce their perceptions of pain. Knowing that they're going to buy into this cell with, you know, expectation and belief, would you violate your kind of intellectual integrity or would you tell them the truth and say, actually, most of these things don't work like it's prescribed? This is one I wonder about all the time because like if I if I rewind like a year or two, my easy answer would have been I'm going to tell them everything. I'm going to tell them all the things don't work, right? And I'm not only am I going to tell them the things don't work, I'm going to like go out of my way to like help more people know that these things don't work. But like sometimes I wonder if that's working against an outcome. I was about to say they're going to go buy it if you tell them it doesn't work. Because I like the, the case, I, I think I've talked about it on the podcast before, but one of my classic ones was there was a surprisingly significant market for waste wraps on military installations, both for military service members and spouses. And people would sell them in like a, 
a multi-level marketing style thing. They would sell these waste right. They'd have like stickers on their car saying you could buy it from them or whatever, all the classic stuff. And, and of course they don't work, but the one I ran into and like some, I forget who I talked to that like laid this one out for me a little bit, but in a ton of cases, people buy these $20 waste wraps that don't work. And then because they want to make sure they get the most out of the waste wrap, they get to the gym and they might not have before, or they like make a slightly different eating decision that night because, oh, they're doing the whole waste wrap thing. I got to get the most out of it. I'm wrapping. Of course, it's the diet and the exercise that helped. It's not the waste wrap, but like maybe like letting them go along with that wasn't the worst thing ever, at least in cases where it's not harmful. Right. It's hard though, because like it, you, it, it brings to mind this question of like, what does works mean? Because, you know, we've talked about this with a lot of the wearables episodes, like I won't name brands, but a lot of them don't work the way that they're advertised to work. But by virtue, like you mentioned with the waste wrap, investing in that and putting money towards it tends to trigger in some cases behaviors that create the change you were seeking in the first place. So does it work or not? I don't know. It's hard to say. Well, there's, there's something in the, in the commercial health and wellness industry called an investment bias, which is if you spend a lot of money on something, you're going to convince yourself that it works no matter what. Mm-hmm. And it just, it reminds me when you guys were talking, it reminds me of when I was doing my master's some years ago, I worked in a, in a running store doing kind of biomechanics tests and selling running sneakers, essentially the people who'd come in these things are really expensive. You buy them brand new, they're whatever, $140, $150. And oftentimes people would come in and they didn't need to, um, yeah, exactly. And they, they didn't need to spend money, uh, you know, all this money on these new sneakers. Often they were perfectly happy in the ones they had. They were injury free. And my advice would be, look, if, if it worked, if, it, if it's not broken, don't fix it, right? Worst thing you can do is if you're injury free, start changing things. But... Uh, Often, if they would they would invest a lot of money in these sneakers, they would feel good about it, and that in itself would be enough to inspire their training or get them to the gym an extra day a week. They wanted to; they've invested in the product, they invest a lot of money in the product, and it works the same with time. So that they're much more likely to train, and maybe they'll they'll get you know it will change the dimensions of their training as a result. So you're right; there are lots of ways to define whether something quote unquote works. It's not, it's not black and white. I kind of, I mean, I don't know if there's even a question here, but it's a thought that comes to mind as you say this, because you could argue that the call to action and, and looking for a more evidence-based approach, the the logical end of that would crumble most of the fitness industry. And so I guess maybe the question there is like, where do you draw the line in terms of what is acceptable placebo type doesn't really do what it says, but still drives positive behavior and just like downright dangerous. I mean, are there examples in this industry that you've seen in your work that are just like, this is dangerous? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I, I mentioned fat diets to begin with and, mm-hmm. and fat diets just are overtly harmful. There's anybody who, who wants to try and lose weight, for example, and again, I mentioned this in the paper, this idea that a fat diet is effective in the short term because it evokes this extreme calorie deficit. And essentially, if you want to lose body fat, you have to have a negative calorie balance so people tend to lose a bit of weight, but obviously what's not happening is people are not learning to eat in a sustainable way. So this fad diet is something that maybe works for four or five, six weeks. They lose a lot of weight because of this calorie deficit. Inevitably, they fall off the wagon. And 
so they regain most of the weight that they've lost. And if you look at six month, one year, two year follow up studies, it shows that people who have lost weight on fad diets tend to regain all of the weight that they've lost. A third of people put on more weight. So they bounce and you'll everybody knows somebody who you know, they bounce from one fad diet to the next and their weight just fluctuates. They get what we call a yo-yo dieting. And yo-yo dieting increases the risk of cardiovascular disease, especially in women. It causes psychopathology, increased risk of um, binge eating, um, but depression, you know, all, all of these kinds of things. So fad dieting, uh, everything that we understand about it has an overtly harmful effect on population health. And there are more, more acute examples like, um, you know, chiro- chiropractic, for example, mm-hmm. is... Uh, is a widespread pseudoscience. It was developed in the 1950s, I think, based on this idea that subluxations of the spine is the is the root of all ailment. And it, it doesn't. You look at the literature; it doesn't work for anything. There's there's such a huge disparity between the claims of of, of chiropractic and the evidence in support of those claims. That the the gulf there is as big as I've ever as I've ever seen for anything. And yet, there are many documented cases of people getting really seriously injured from spinal manipulations from neck manipulations there is something called neonate chiropractic which is chiropractic um done on a newborn baby mm-hmm. i mean if you look at any of any of the videos of a new of a, a newborn baby's spine or neck being manipulated um it, it's just it's awful and again there are there are tragic cases without going to much detail but it, it has predictable outcomes so these are pseudo in many cases these are these are pseudosciences that are being peddled as medical interventions the difference is with legitimate evidence based medical interventions there is always a risk to benefit ratio that a physician is trained to consider but when the benefit hinges on nothing more than placebo then the risks become really difficult to justify especially with something like chiropractic. So, and, and there are lots of examples from complementary and alternative medicine of these things having overt harm. I mean, just look at any of the work by um, Edson Ernst, who's a researcher from the University of Exeter. He's written extensively on this, this uh, subject. So I'll, I'll do a couple housekeeping notes here. One is if you're interested in what Nick was just saying about chiropractic, we had Aaron Kubel on he said the same thing you did and he's a chiropractor. It's important to know he is a chiropractor. <laughs> it's you can go, if you Google him on the internet, you can find lots of chiropractor forums where they treat him like the antichrist. Cause he like went to their schooling and now is like out there pointing the out Lord's work. the evidence that it, it doesn't work so good. <laughs> um, so that's a fun one. If you want to go down that rabbit hole, I also want to shout out, cause this comes up fairly frequently. You talked about creatine as a, as a very well-studied supplement, but something I, I run into people who like know that, but what they don't know is Almost any creatine you're buying anywhere under any brand name is just Creapure manufactured at the same facility in Germany. Right. Yeah. There's no reason to buy special brands that's claimed to be better or whatever. Like this. <laughs> it's very frustrating to me because you see like nicely marketed creatine or creatine from like a much more reputable brand. It's like, or an you got to pay more for it. It's the, they bought it from the same supplier as everybody else's creatine monohydrate. It all comes from right. the same place. So that, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. very frustrating. Yeah, you're absolutely right there. And there are hundreds of brands that, that are all essentially exactly the same product under the, you know, in the tin, but it all comes from the same place. I guess there are, there are two very small caveats to that. Number one is that you you need to be 
cautious of where the thing is actually packaged. So they might buy the raw ingredient from Korea Pure, but then it's mm-hmm. it's packaged and yeah. put into capsule form in a in a you know a place that isn't well regulated, or uh, uh, you know had to have a lot a lot of frequent inspections. So particularly for for athletes who are performing. Uh, at the elite level, they've got to be careful that their supplements yep. are not contaminated, tainted with things that they that they shouldn't have in there. And um, the other the other thing is that there are uh, different um, uh, filtrations of creatine, so you can have micronized creatine, mm-hmm. and micronized creatine is just basically ground up into a finer powder, which in theory makes it a little bit easier to digest. But otherwise, it, you're absolutely right. In essence, it's it's basically all the same stuff. Yeah. And they, they microdize it because it does not dissolve in water, right. which is a problem a lot of people it's run into. It's also, sand. it's also how bang energy got in trouble for like claiming they had super creatine when there was no precipitate in their beverage. And right. that's a whole, that's a whole other rabbit hole. It's a sad day for the military. You know, but <laughs> the, a question I want to ask you, and we've talked about these things like working in the context of placebo and like some of these things do help, but the, the health and fitness industry has gotten bigger and bigger. It's making more and more money. There's more and more products available. The technology is incredible. You can walk into various stores and get any supplement or thing you want. You can get all this cool equipment. You can get like socially networked training equipment. You can use at home to see your friends and just a vast amount of stuff is available. And one would assume that if it on the whole was working, that society would be getting progressively healthier and fitter. And that's clearly not the case. So like, why, why is there no reckoning happening for an industry that is claiming to modernize and expand and have so many customers that are benefiting from it? If there's no perceivable, measurable impact on the population level of this industry, having the effect it's claiming to have at all. Right. I mean, it's, it's a million dollar question. And when you look at the statistics on how many people actually meet the daily recommended physical activity guidelines? It's you know it's a fraction of the of the of the population. It's far far lower than than it should be in the U.S. and Europe. Some other countries around the world do a little bit better, but in general, and th- these are the minimum guidelines, right? Of three hundred minutes of, of moderate to intense physical activity a week, and most people are not meeting that. You can look at the the daily steps. It shows the same kind of story, and just the obesity rates. You know, obesity rates have been trending upwards for decades now, and in most countries, these rates are at an all time high. It's uh, in the next ten years, it's predicted to be one in two Americans and one in three Europeans are obese, not just overweight, but obese. So yeah, it comes back to your question: if all of these things are trending in the wrong direction. And yet the profits from the health and wellness industry are, are at an all-time high. How do we consolidate that? And the answer is that we don't. That the, the the point is that people have this quick fix fallacy ingrained within them. You know, we, we've evolved logic and reason for for well, two things: navigating hypersocial groups and for recognizing patterns in the environment. Because when the human genome, when the pre-human genome was being naturally selected, these things conferred an important survival advantage. But modern society has changed so dramatically, just even the last 30, 40, 50 years since the introduction of internet, and particularly social media, we do not have the internal wiring to be able to deal with this concoction of mass consumerism, social media, mis and disinformation. 
And that cocktail just cuts right through any of the biases that, that we have. They, it just cuts right to them so that people, as I said at the start, they um, this idea that there are simple solutions to complex problems, that is the only way that people generally know how to, to tackle any of these issues. You know, in, in, I, I told you this, the, the, the anecdote when I worked in this, this sneaker store selling running sneakers, uh, people would come in with shin pain, and the first thing that they wanted was some compression tights to, to to kind of you know to reduce the inflammation or help with the blood flow or something. They and it, as soon as I told them that, well, okay, you need to maybe get in the gym and look at the strength imbalances that you have. You need to look at your running gait and see if you're loading incorrectly. You need to think about your training. Maybe get some more recovery days. Uh, they just glaze over and switch off because that these things require a time investment and an effort investment that people are not programmed to be able to give. So the industry, just it, we just go round and round. Uh, it just exploits people's inherent need for this quick fix. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a real problem. Are there other industries where this is as prevalent? I mean, I realize that a lot of my, all of our really, like social media intake, all of that is driven by what we're surrounded by, which in a lot of cases is exercise science. So I'm just not aware of it being as prevalent in other industries, but surely it must be. I think it's prevalent in any space where critical faculties are blunted, which is basically everywhere. And you can see examples of, of this all over the world. You know, health and wellness is very broad, but we can extend that out to cosmetics. For example, you see the same mm -hmm. kind of unsupported claims, uh, any, any kind of... Um, it, we see it in the in the produce industry, organic foods, GMOs. You know, it, it gets pretty broad there. And I don't want to go down this this. Uh, I don't want to go down this road of this line of inquiry. But you know, you can look at what's happened to in U.S. politics over the last couple of years, and people are just not uh, thinking critically enough to be able to make informed decisions about the world around them. You're from uh, the UK, and they're not yeah. immune to this this phenomenon either. <laughs> no, no, of course, of course not. We're, it's it's um, I wouldn't say just as prevalent or just as bad in the UK, but uh, you know, 2016, the the people in the UK made a, a very odd decision to leave the European Union, and um, again, that that was based on widespread misinformation. Sorry, I'm probably going to get emails now, but but <laughs> you know, we, you can you can go and uh, quote do your own research. And, and you'll see how much mis and disinformation was propagated in the build-up to that referendum. And we, we see that in politics now. Um, it, it's no coincidence that the term post-truth was the Oxford English Dictionary word of word of the year in 2016, for good reason. I'm glad. So I'm glad you brought that up. And we probably should have started with that definition because any, I mean, if you look at any of your work, your book, like that's, you need to know what that means. Can you just like real quick touch on what do you mean when you say post-truth? Yeah, well, I mean, there are people have written books on this notion of the post-truth, but very brief, very briefly, it's it's based on the notion that there is no such thing anymore in modern society as an objective fact. We used to be able to agree on what a on what fact was and what fiction was, and it's this idea that people have alternative facts that that you can have evidence and uh, and, and valid resources and science to support your claims. Somebody else can just go and do a cursory, you know, online search. They can do their own research and come up with some kind of alternative fact. It's the the very notion that we are 
now questioning something. There are fringe facets of society who question whether or not the world is round. I mean, it's an oblate spheroid, but people are actually uh, convinced that that we that we live on a flat Earth. And this idea of the flat Earth theory is um, has really gained prominence over the last kind of decade or so. And it's largely based on this idea that we're now in, in living in a society where there is no such thing as an objective fact. And as Isaac Asimov said, uh, this idea that your opinion is as valid as my fact, which it clearly isn't, right? <laughs> so, and and it, and it can and just to just to extend the the, the point, it, it sort of links into a, a brilliant book that I read recently. Uh, called the death of expertise which i'm sure you're familiar with by mm. tom nichols and he kind of goes into the to the whole uh discussion on on what is fact and what is fiction and this idea that that facts and opinions have become conflated particularly by social media in which everyone's given a platform to give their opinions on something and we're not very good at assimilating this idea that actually we're entitled to have an opinion on everything but not all of our opinions are valid on everything and i gave the example recently you know if i had to go in for a shoulder surgery a few years back and and the last thing i'm thinking of doing is giving the surgeon advice on where to make the incision and talking to the uh you know to the uh anesthesiologist about what dose of which drug to give me but when when the stakes are high you shut your mouth and you let the experts do their job so I think we've got to try and regain our our respective experts a little bit. So I'm glad you mentioned that because this is something that I've run into a lot. And I think a lot of us in this space run into a lot because you're looking at multidisciplinary teams of, we'll call them exercise science professionals and also sometimes medical professionals. And when, when someone walks in to say a physical therapist's office or an orthopedic surgeon, like you mentioned, they're not questioning a lot of times what that individual says. But if you're a dietitian or a strength coach and someone walks into your office and you say, hey, you know, don't eat X, Y, Z or train this way, they're going to, in some cases, like fight you on that because they see, you know, online or they've done their own. So I guess, why, why do you think that that is that like the, maybe the biomedical world is this untouchable kind of bastion of, of expertise, but the exercise science world is completely like the wild west well i think it, in large part it comes down to the fact that there is this inherent overlap between exercise science and health and wellness the two things are sort of considered intrinsically linked and there is so much crap so much bullshit in health and wellness that 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 comes back on people who work in exercise science and that 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 gives the that, that damages the reputation of our discipline I mean, we we um, as exercise scientists, we often struggle to publish in medical journals. We uh, work on a lot of very interesting research that has direct implications for patient populations, and it's not it's often not taken seriously by physicians and healthcare professionals because it's coming from a kinesiology or an exercise science background, and this is a direct result of the fact that the reputation of the discipline has been damaged because of its connections with health and wellness. And we're not very good at self-policing. Science is supposed to be a, a discipline that polices itself. And I, I, I've just um, written a paper, actually, that is hopefully going to be published any day now, fingers crossed. And it's all about this in in exercise science, we, we, we're exhibiting this ostrich effect, 
where the, the things are bad and we have a we have a replication crisis and we have a very overinflated false positivity rate and um a, a lot of the we have a lot of widespread use of predatory journals and paid to publish journals and so forth and rather than actually tackling these problems we're just burying our heads in the sand because we'd rather just um, focus on quantitative performance metrics and publishing papers and grant income and actually if we're going to reform the discipline and reform health and wellness as i said in my in my call to action it's something that we can't shy away from this is a problem that will only be fixed from the inside so it's our responsibility. If we don't fix it, nobody else is going to. There's That brings up an anecdote I saw earlier today. Have, have you looked at the research at all on palm cooling for performance? Uh, a little, yeah. I'm not well-versed in it, but I'm, I'm aware of the research. So I, I personally have not gone down that rabbit hole very far, but I it's like a strange enough claim that I've taken note of it when it pops up and I've seen it pop up in like professional forums of people who are trying to incorporate it into their training programs or with are you their saying athletes palm like, that. like your hand, like the palm of your hands, you cool it down, you cool can it down. You put on these gloves okay. that make your hands cold. And you, you will find if you go out there, like quote unquote, legitimate researchers saying that like the effect of palm cooling is more impactful than like steroid use. And yet if you like take the time, it, it sure looks like all of the research showing any kind of significant significant effect size is coming out of the same lab, like the same people. And few, if any, other labs have been able to replicate it to any degree at all, which is like an immediate red flag on something like going back to the self-policing and how science is supposed to work. The whole scientific method is about disproving things. That's the whole point of it. But it's exciting when you find something new that gets published and gets headlines. It's not that exciting when people fail to replicate something, right? Like those replication studies often aren't pursued because they're not exciting enough to get funding. And if they are pursued, they might not get published in as high impact factor journals and things like that. Well, well people forget that the vast majority of science, the bulk of science research is just throwing specks of sand on the growing sand dune of knowledge right it's, it's not it's not sensational research it's not really huge profound breakthroughs it's just the daily grind of of good scientific research that accumulates into knowledge knowledge very rarely is there any kind of interesting breakthrough and when it does it's it people because people have been standing on the shoulders of giants but when you see how a lot of these breakthroughs are reported in the media the media uh, even even the ones that are well-intentioned and are trying to do a good job of science reporting they're they're still in it for the likes and the shares and the retweets and the clicks and because that engagement is the currency nowadays right literally and figuratively so they can't help but use sensational headlines and cover stories about articles that are not necessarily replicated you know and, and this example here where all the research is coming out of one lab that's why replication is important the problem is, is that we have studies that are set up in a way that makes them very difficult to replicate. You know, we've got small sample sizes, they're not very well controlled, uh, very low statistical power. I mean, we, we published a paper talking about high intensity interval training recently, and um, a, a lot of the literature in the area, by no means all of it, but a lot of it is based on sample sizes of between 10 and 12 individuals and statistical power of a, between 0.2 and 0.3 which means that if a real effect exists, you have a 20 to 30% chance of accurately identifying that real effect, which is 
which is absolutely terrible, right? <laughs> they're, they're kind of the, the lower threshold for what is considered acceptable is 0.8, 80%. And we see this in, in all sorts of areas. So the fact that something isn't replicable is a, is a real problem. I, I found the same thing recently. Um, sorry, I'm, I realize I'm monologuing a little bit. No, but please. I, I, I've, been writing, re, I've been writing recently for my column in Skeptical Inquirer about barefoot running, barefoot running shoes, which um, was a phenomenon that really came to prominence in about 2009, 2010. And all of the interesting research has kind of come out of, like you say, one lab or from the same group of individuals. And if you look at the small print, it's the, the, these studies are funded by barefoot running manufacturers, which is, it's not damning, but it's a red flag. And when you look at the the recent, or when you look at the literature over the last 10 years, showing that there's actually no difference in injury rates between people who wear barefoot shoes and people who wear traditional shoes, you see this huge disconnect between the messages that we're seeing in the media who love this idea that everyone's been doing it wrong all these years, and um, and the, the kind of the scientific consensus, which really is is pretty clear now, uh, and that's that's a whole, you know, the way that the media handle the sensationalist, you know, the sensa- sensational headlines, but that's a whole another podcast, I think. So, you used a phrase a few minutes ago that I keyed in on a little bit, and you you put quotes around it. You're talking about quote unquote, do your own research, and that. The, the phrase triggers me a little bit because I worry about like there's a there's a subcategory, especially on social media of like evidence based influencery stuff where they're always attaching like PMIDs afterwards or whatever it is. And and some of those are very legit people who are trying to like point you towards resources. Many of them will acknowledge that most of their followers do not follow the leads towards the resources. The click through rate is astonishingly low, but some people use it as far as I can tell for just like a veneer of legitimacy. And I've, I've run into this in a few different ways, playing in the the whole social media sandbox. Um, like one particular account I follow is an exercise scientist who is, he's not the most polite. Um, he's pretty aggressive about like kind of trying to inform people who seem misinformed or like asking them questions. And he's getting blocked all the time. Um, I'm not quite as aggressive about it, but I've had several like leading figures in the industry block me for asking questions. And I try to be like polite about the way I ask the question, but, and I'm just going to go ahead and name people because I love a little bit of drama, but like Matt Wenning is a really well-known power lifter. He, he put up this chart of adaptation times for different tissues in the body. And I was really interested in it because that is a graphic I had tried to make before. I thought something like that would be very useful for my audience. And as soon as I started reading, I realized that there's no way to make a graphic that is both simple and true that like puts like tendon healing, bone healing, muscle healing adaptation, like all on the same chart in any way that's going to be like reflective of the actual science. Cause it depends. It depends on the kind of injury depends on the training state of the individual. Like so many things make it impossible to make this nice graph. And he had a graph that was like perfectly parallel curves. It was beautiful. And so I asked him like, Hey, like, do you mind telling me like where you got some of this information because I've tried to work on something very similar and I was blocked like five minutes later. And like in other cases, like John Russin, well-known guy by all reports, the pain-free performance specialist course is a good one. Um, but he was making claims about like obesity and genetics and things like that. And first I asked for a citation and he said, do your own research. 
<laughs> and then I was like, well, I looked at it and I'm finding different answers. So I'd love to know where you got this particular one from. And he, he provided a citation. I read the paper and it did not back up the claim he was making. He just like threw a link at me thinking it would get me to shut up. I like, there's, there's a lot of people trying to like use citations in academic literature against an audience that they're pretty sure won't read it or I like won't understand it if they try. And like, I feel like it damages the overall like evidence-based health and wellness, evidence-based exercise science community when people do that. Yeah, I agree with you hundred percent. And there, there are two reasons why this might happen. Number one, as you said, it's trying to, it, it's window dressing. It's trying to lend a, an air of scientific authenticity to their work. They know that people want want valid resources and they they want to come across as a as an educated well-read individual and you know an expert in the area so they're going to share links to things and it's quite possible probable in fact that they they probably haven't read the papers themselves they've just read some headlines and they're sharing these links for that purpose the the other issue which has come up a few times in my experience is when you have experts who are sharing papers with their with their audience or sharing links to articles uh, and they they haven't read them they think they know the content of the paper but they're sharing them um without having read them in advance i mean there was a, a an instance a very well-known dietitian sports performance dietitian on twitter uh, if people follow my twitter they'll they'll know exactly who i'm talking about i, I won't name her here but she's she's got hundreds of thousands of followers on twitter she shared a paper and a couple of tables from this thing about vitamin D supplementation and how vitamin D can improve cardiorespiratory fitness in, in people who are doing, um, uh, who people who are just recreationally active, not athletes at all. And, and I'm just looking at the, the tables that she shared online and it just, something doesn't sit right with me. And this thing has already got four or 5,000 retweets and the alt metric for the paper is going through the roof, largely because of her, uh, her having shared it. And to cut a very long story short, I did a deep dive into the paper, found so many things that were wrong with it, so many questionable aspects of the paper. I wrote to the editor of the journal who followed up with the authors of the paper, and it was eventually retracted because the, the editor had completely lost faith in all aspects of the data integrity. And I just can't help but feel that you wouldn't have missed those very fundamental aspects if you'd bothered to read the paper at all. And in this contemporary culture where well again this has been studied very very extensively we've, we've been moving away from long-form text for a long time people don't read books anymore people don't read newspapers or magazines they're using social media more and more especially young people get their news and their entertainment from social media and we are conditioned to short-form text if anything's longer than whatever it is 280 characters we're not interested and so when we're sharing things on Instagram or Twitter, and it's usually a, an abstract. More often than not, it's an infographic. You can't boil some good science down to an infographic. Science is complicated. Science is nuanced. And as soon as you start trying to distill messages into, you know, coaster quotes or infographics or abstracts, even you're misrepresenting the real science. And I think that's kind of the essence of the problem here is that um, you need people who are willing to read papers and people who can understand papers. And that takes time. That takes time to, to get the skill set in order to do that. But if, if you're not, if you're not willing to put the time in, then it's best if you try and avoid that area altogether because you're, you're, you're going to get it wrong. I guess 
So, I mean, we've, we've kind of laid out and you've done this as well in your call to action. This industry at large seems to be at odds. Profits trending up, however, obesity trending up. So like, I guess what I'm getting at is, is it time for the academic side of this industry to reconsider the methods that it uses to push out information? And I'm thinking specifically about the peer reviewed model where as you mentioned, like there's a massive learning curve in digesting that information. Why would I not go to Instagram and just scroll and and take things in? At the same time, even if you do find a paper that you like and you want to read it, in some cases, it's could be hundreds of dollars to even get access to it. And so it, it, to me, at least growing up in this space, it's always seemed like the industry kind of hamstrings itself, no pun intended, because that is that is the quote unquote best practice for for receiving knowledge, the peer-reviewed space. But we've already seen that like it's at odds with the the clickbait culture. So how do you I guess if if you could speak to the industry and you do in a lot of cases, how do you how do you fix that? Right. Well I think it comes down to finding legitimate experts who have not necessarily just academic qualifications and experience, but who are the the, the advice has to stand alone on merit. So you could have somebody who's not particularly qualified who's giving good advice, somebody who has four degrees and is giving terrible advice, and there are those people are out there. In the, the best of both worlds, you'd have somebody who is qualified, has experience, and is giving good advice. So I think the first thing to do is try and find those people. Don't just follow somebody. Twitter followers are not credentials. Instagram followers are not credentials in and of themselves. So, so we have to be a little bit more... Uh, sophisticated with with who we you know that with the people that we track down online and the people that we choose to follow and then the, the other issue is in trying to be okay with not knowing things i think the the human condition is one that is um cursed with this with this inherent need to know and understand everything and when sometimes it's okay just to put your hands up and say, you know what, I don't know. And we're not very good at doing that. So um, I, I think we've got to be a little bit more comfortable with not knowing things. And if you, if you can't, if you can't do research and be, be confident that you've found an objective truth, you know, that, that you've that you found a logical, reasonable, rational conclusion that you're confident in, and you can't find an expert who's willing to help you find that outcome then just be okay with saying, you know what, I don't know. And this is just going to have to wait for another time. Don't just um, pick the first study that conforms to your pre-existing beliefs and then, and then go with that, you know, and the other, the, the other thing is just go, go back to your question. I really want more academics and practitioners and people who are known experts in the field, actually communicating with the mainstream, being more active on social media, writing for mainstream outlets, because more often than not, it is non-experts who are interpreting scientific findings and then translating it to the mainstream, and they're doing it wrong. They're not doing a very good job. It's usually not intentional. But as I've said, to read a paper and to understand the nuances and to know if the statistics are appropriate and to know if the if the methodology is, is appropriate for the hypothesis, you know, to test the hypothesis, that takes time and that takes training. And what you have in this kind of middle space, you have you have academics doing the research, you have the consumers at the other end, and this middle space is occupied by people who don't really, who often don't really know how to interpret and understand the science. So I want more experts to be 
actually, rather than turning their noses up at writing for mainstream magazines, and uh, rather than you know not having any time to engage with people on social media, to actually try and cross that boundary, because the best advice that you get is by people who successfully managed to straddle that line. So, you know, like guys like um, you know, in in weight training and uh, and health and fitness, like Brad Schoenfeld, who's very active on Instagram. He's he's a legitimate expert and he's got whatever hundreds of thousands of followers. One of the few academics that seems to be able to tread that line and he does it successfully. And we want more experts like that that are willing to um, you know, cross that boundary. Because otherwise, as I said, it's it's left to people who don't necessarily understand the science. I guess a follow-on to that then is like who, in your mind, who who drives that? Because I, I can't imagine it's the the industry leading bodies like the National Strength and Conditioning, because in a lot of cases, people don't really look at them either. So like whose shoulder do we tap to say, hey, like let's let's push, let's highlight these people or let's like what does that look like? Well, if I've understood your question, I, I think the problem is that the really serious academics, the ones who are in the labs, the, they are preoccupied with publishing papers and getting grants. And this is all they do with their time. So mm-hmm. the serious academics, or they are, you know, practitioners who are working with athletes who are on the front lines, who are trying to improve performance, guys like yourselves who are, you know, working with uh, individuals to achieve a certain outcome. You don't necessarily have time to accumulate followers online you don't have time to put out content to engage followers you don't have time to write for mainstream magazines and and often the the, the serious academics will look down on people who do that and um and, and if you this is purely my perception so i don't have any data to back this up but my perception is that when you see people online and they're very active you know, they've got lots of followers and they're churning out content and they have a sub stack and they have podcasts and they have everything else. Very rarely are they, that that's normally kind of the bulk of their work. They're normally a science communicator or they, they have their own business that they're promoting online. Very rarely are they practitioners or academics or, you know, intellectuals or, um, you know, you very rarely find people that manage to, as I said, straddle that boundary. And I think that's a problem that because ultimately advice that is getting disseminated online is not is not necessarily coming from the best resources. People are going to misinterpret it. And if if an academic produces a paper and then just sends it out into the ether, and then you know three thousand shares and retweets later, as people are completely misinterpreting the message, well, you've got no one to blame but yourself because you've just sent this thing out and and not spoken about it again. But actually no one's better place to to interpret and understand your research than you are so maybe we want to make better effort to communicate the science rather than just um, publishing it i've got a, a fantastic vignette for that one i don't know if you're up to date on the latest internet drama enough to know about the whole thing that went around with the tufts food compass uh nutrition scoring system mm-hmm. haven't seen this it went a little bit it, it's gone around the internet a few times this is probably it's like third lap of misinformation joe um, rogan got, got on it yeah it got a really big boost because joe rogan shared like a a hot take that misinterpreted a graph whatever whatever that, that'll um, do it yeah, but, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thanks joe. but the graph the graph that has gotten all of this attention did not actually come from the study people were trying to criticize it came from a follow-up study criticizing the original study 
but the follow-up study acknowledges that the original study was extremely thorough and used some solid methods and things like that, but they, it, and the Tufts food compass was attempting to put together a quantitative food scoring system that could apply to any food, regardless of category and like score it on how healthy it was zero to a hundred, which is a hard thing to do. Most systems require you to categorize it beforehand, whatever. Uh, and and at no point was it government endorsed. And even the authors of the study say this is just to like help provide an extra piece of information, whatever. Another group of researchers, part of their paper was they produced a graph of illustrative examples of misleading results if you use Tufts method. Uh, not saying like the whole thing is bad, just saying like here are some examples of outputs that are clearly incongruous with like the general stance of the the field. And that took off and went wild on the internet because people were saying like, this is the food pyramid the government wants you to believe. Lucky charms are better than steak. They're crazy. They're out to get you, whatever. And I, I did a fairly deep dive on figuring out where this came from and who these people were. And I stumbled across the Instagram page of one of the authors of the criticism study. And he is not running a public profile. He has like 184 followers. It's pretty much pictures of his dog. You wouldn't even know he's a researcher. And it's so, like, I, I followed him because I was curious to see like what the, the backlash would be during this and stuff. And all I saw him post was one like random story post saying, well, in the last two weeks, I've been contacted by more journalists than I ever have in the entirety of my career. And not a single one of them understood what my paper was about in the first mm -hmm. place. And I don't think he even like caught, I don't think he ever even talked to the journalist. He like wasn't bothered and like was letting the internet do what the internet does. And <laughs> But it speaks to the essence of the problem is that is people share and uh, pe people essentially share without knowing the details of what it is that they're sharing. And I think uh, we're, we're in, we have meme culture now. So a, a scientific study with a good headline or an infographic that perhaps mis misrepresents the findings of a paper or this example that, you, that you've given here. It's uh, it, it, it's in much the same way as a meme. It's just going to be shared and it's going to proliferate because it has an interesting, catchy message, something that people can identify with, something that people find accessible. And before you know it, it's been shared hundreds of thousands of times. And I think the problem is that people don't really understand social media. You know, it's such a huge part of our lives now. It's the 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 vast majority, the bulk of missing disinformation is coming from social media itself your multiple platforms billions of people around the world are, are using these things as i've said particularly young people who get most of their news and entertainment from social media and very few people except for you know the the engineers and programmers who designed the algorithms on which social media is based actually understand how these things work and if you're going to be a, a good critical thinker, a good decision maker, if you're going to be a responsible member of society, you have a responsibility, you have a duty to understand how these platforms work and how it's promoting engagement. And this idea of meme culture, this idea of sharing things that have sensational headlines, sharing fake news, these things proliferate because they evoke an emotive response. You know, people have, it's, it's more, more often than not, it's something divisive, and that kind of thing promotes engagement. And the, the, the social media algorithms generate content based on your previous viewing history. So all we're doing is generating a, uh, an echo chamber of confirmation bias. And, uh, and most people don't understand how these platforms work. So when I'm teaching classes on critical thinking, the first thing I 
talk to them about uh, in in this area is that most of what you see online is fake. It's designed to get you to engage with it. It's either something that somebody has designed to get you to feel either very, very happy or very, very angry. So it's usually, you know, a dog on a skateboard or, a you know, a cat, you know, cuddling its owner or, uh, you know, some somebody being rescued from somewhere, something that's going to evoke a positive emotional response, or it's going to be something that's, that will get you very angry, very uptight, that, um, that, con- that contradicts your pre-existing bias, because that's how engagement works online. And it, it, this is meme culture through and through. I do. I want to close the loop on this one because I I pulled up his page just to confirm it. So the researcher's name is Ty Beal. Um, He has 259 total followers. Hey, he's going up. He has posted 21 total times and like none of them are about nutrition. They're about his family, but he has one recent post and it's, it's a screenshot from Joe Rogan's page. And the, the Joe Rogan post has the headline that says government funded food pyramid says lucky charms are healthier than steak. And all that Ty said about it was Joe Rogan posted my graph and I had more reporters and journalists contact me than I had in my entire career until then. If only I could get a million likes on my scientific post, which is it's funny because that post where Ty posted it got 36 likes. Joe Rogan's post, as of when Ty screenshotted it a couple of weeks ago, had 925,000 and is probably well beyond a million at this point. And most of the people seeing it probably believe it. I gave a presentation on Tuesday where some of the people in the audience like already knew the stuff I did and have seen my page. And like I I wrote a whole blog post about how this thing was complete misinformation. And one of the guys had not seen any of my content about it. He'd only seen Joe Rogan's content about it. And he still thought it was true. Right. And this is like weeks after the fact. And he had shared it to his friends. And I was just well, his tweet speaks volumes. If only my scientific work could get that that many. Po- I mean, it's like this game Broken Telephone that you used to play when you were kids. You know, you come up with a phrase and you whisper it in the ear of the person next to you, and then they do the same. And about you get 10, 12 people down, and then the person at the end of the row has to has to speak the phrase, and it comes out completely gibberish. It's completely mistranslated from what it originally was, and that's essentially what's happening here. It's a shame that, but it but it speaks volumes about about modern culture uh, that um that there was a, a quote unquote expert who is a, a medical doctor who's studying for a phd at the moment is very prevalent on social media and in his bio it says followed by joe rogan like it's so it's so um you know profound to him that that's something that's actually included in his bio that, that joe rogan's following him as if that's something i don't know is that a credential are you proud of that um but nowadays that's, that's, that's well currency be. on social media isn't it do you do you see i mean this this just kind of came to mind as you were talking because and i don't want to paint with broad brush strokes here that you know we think of academics as being out of touch like you mentioned with meme culture or whatever but i guess as this generation of of students who are engaged in sort of the learning process of exercise science as they get older and, and take over that role of research and and the academic space do, do you have a sense that it might change what that looks like? And as that adapts to the requirements of, of pop culture, social media, whatever you want to call it, I'm curious to see what research looks like in 10 years. Yeah, it's something that I'm really concerned about because 
I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that the three of us are maybe you guys are a little bit younger than me, but Alex is probably... like 15. <laughs> well, maybe he's a lot younger than me, but I think we're kind of roughly in this, you know, same kind of generation, give or take a few years. And I distinctly remember what it was like before smartphones, before social media was so pervasive. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've seen how society has changed and I, I can I'm acutely aware how my attention is now constantly divided and I'm something that I'm working actively to combat. And I, and I see how I respond to things and I see how social media affects me and affects my day-to-day activities. But my concern is that the current generation and the students that I, that I teach um, or when I teach is that they've never known anything else that they've never known anything other than having a smartphone in their hand, you know, 18 hours of the day. It's the last thing they look at when they go to sleep. It's the first thing they look at when they get up. And their their whole culture has always revolved around being online and social media. And th- that affects the way that you make decisions. But, you know, the, it, it, it cannot it cannot not affect the way that you make decisions when there is so much misinformation. And as, as I said earlier, these algorithms are designed to keep you engaged by showing you whatever you want to see. When you're scrolling on Instagram, your phone knows, or the algorithm that's being run here knows when you stop scrolling, it knows when you click, it knows when you, when you're reading something and what you're reading and it generates content based on that. And I worry about how that's going to impact the, the researchers of tomorrow. And you couple that to the fact that we don't teach critical thinking in schools or college or university. The closest that we get to it is research methods. And research methods on a science course is great for future producers of science, but it's not aimed at future consumers of science. And for that, we need independent critical thinking that is vertically integrated as a distinct course. And no one is really doing that at the moment. That's what really concerns me. That's something we have to change. Reading your book, you you talk a lot about like what should be taught in schools in terms of critical thinking and how it could be taught and things like that. And it got me thinking as we prepared this, because one thing that like Drew and I talk about a lot is the lack of health education and physical education happening in our public schools. And I think that like pairs nicely with the, like we need to educate people on critical thinking so they can consume this stuff, but we're also sending them out into the world, not only unprepared to consume that information, but with no baseline education on those topics. And we're, we're not just like, I could do a whole rant on this, but we keep cutting recess and physical education to give them more time in the classroom to theoretically improve their test scores, despite plenty of extremely convincing research on the benefits of physical activity for people's ability to retain what they're learning in the classroom and the amount of recommended daily activity for kids being much higher than they're getting in most cases in school actively standing in the way of that. It, I don't know. I don't know what the solution is, but you're advocating for critical thinking. We're advocating for more physical education, health education. I think those things align to have a very similar outcome goal. Yeah. I mean, ultimately I want people to be better at making decisions. That That's what I want, not just in health and wellness. Obviously that's my ballpark, but that, that's my, um, wheelhouse if you like but but i i see how lack of critical thinking skills affects all aspects of society i think all of the problems that we face nowadays um 
in modern society come down to lack of critical thinking skills, lack of skeptical faculties. And I think if people were, uh, if people understood the tenets of critical thinking and understood decision-making, had a better relationship with their own minds and the way that they make decisions and spent a little less time on social media, a little bit more time reading you know, books by Asimov and Carl Sagan and James Randi and Christopher Hitchens, you know, thinkers and oh, he's skeptics. some classics right now, right? Yeah, exactly. But but these people um, influenced me in the way the way that I think. And when I you know I graduated in with my master's in two thousand seven before I'd read any of these books, and I wasn't I was a good scientist, but I wasn't a critical thinker. And those two things are not are not necessarily they don't necessarily um go hand in hand they are mutually exclusive i mean we see all the time people who graduate medical school and become homeopaths or, or we see physiotherapists who are you know dishing out chiropractic or we see nutritionists who are recommending fad diets and we see this all the time you can be a, you can be a, a scientist without necessarily being a critical thinker so we we need to work as a as a society to bridge that gap so that so that the graduates of tomorrow have the, these skills ingrained, um, so that and, and they can use those skills whatever they decide to do for a living, whether they work in health and wellness or not. Um, because I think, as I said, a lot of the issues that we face in modern culture come down to lack of critical thinking. I will. I want to shout it out briefly because I really appreciate in like the list of authors he named. People who don't necessarily know those authors might assume he's talking strictly about scientists. And, and he absolutely is not there. There was like a representation of a wide number of fields there to include like science fiction classics that help you think about things like the, there's a whole conversation there about the value of reading works of fiction to help frame the way you think about problems and things. We won't necessarily go down that rabbit hole, but I think that is, there's a valuable comment there about who you cited as foundational to the way you think about problems and the fact that they're not all scientists. Yeah. And if, if you want to, if you want to get better at making informed educated decisions go and go and read some of the asimov science fiction the robot series because these are detective novels the fact that it's set in the future is irrelevant but these are detective novels that are based on hypothesis testing and the 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 book is just revolves around usually it's two people having a conversation and they're just it's like uh you know two philosophers in ancient greece who are just sitting hypothesizing about things and they're testing hypotheses and it's just a, a beautiful example of how of, of how the consideration that we need to give when we're going to make an important decision on something. And if only people deliberated that way about all modern day decisions, I think we'd be a lot better off. I've been struggling for like this back half of 2022. I read a tremendous number of like scientific professionally relevant books or whatever, and was very proud of myself. And then over the holidays, I cut myself some slack and read a bunch of Brandon Sanderson. If people are familiar with like fantasy books. Yep. And my plan was I was going to read three of his books over the holidays and then go back to like the stuff I had sitting to go read smart stuff. And, uh, it's, it's February 9th and I've read like seven of his <laughs> books in the last couple of weeks and it's a problem. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think just as long as you're reading, whatever you're reading is good, uh, because it trains attention. And that's something that, uh, we've, we've, we've alluded to a couple of times is that we're, we're that there are too many outlets vying for our attention constantly. And if you can sit down and read for an extended period of time, then you're training attention, so which means you'll be, you, you'll be able to sit down and read anything. So if you can make a, uh, an educated decision about what you want to read. Hey, that's, that's, um, that's good. That's better than nothing. As, as we work 
towards a close and I, we're, we're kind of all three of us are kind of circling this right now. So I'll just ask it directly as like a tangible takeaway for people that are listening. You mentioned that you teach critical thinking and it's something that we've kind of touched on throughout this whole thing is very important, especially in exercise science. So what's a good way, like if I'm somebody who's, who's young and who is being faced with all of these decisions that I could make with regards to my health, what, you know, what I eat, how I train, what I buy, what are some good strategies for people to just get better at making those decisions? Where are some places that you point your students and how do you engage with like becoming a better critical thinker? Well, the, the first thing that I would say, and, and thanks for asking the question, because this is kind of, this is the nuts and bolts right here. The first thing I would say is don't expect to be able to, to just be a skeptic or be a critical thinker. And when I say skeptic, I don't mean being a cynic. I mean being skeptical about the world. And that's a good thing. It means asking for evidence for, for assertions, not just believing things by default. And uh, you don't just uh, you can't just choose to be a good critical thinker any more than you can choose to play the violin or choose to speak a foreign language. These are skills that need to be acquired, and they are only acquired with time and effort and practice. And once you have acquired these skills, you have to practice and hone and refine those skills. So it, it does take time. It does take a little bit of investment, but it is the most valuable investment that you'll ever make because once you start to understand your own biases. Once you understand the way that you make decisions, you can apply those same principles to every decision that you make, whether it's what exercise to, to do at the gym or what supplement to take or what to eat or who to vote for in the election or, uh, you, you know, whatever it happens to be, you can apply those same skills. We, I was saying critical thinking that the, the common law, L-O-R-E, is teach people how to think rather than what to think. And so to answer your question then, people need to uh, look at some of the, the people that I've mentioned, people like Carl Sagan, who wrote a wonderful book, The Demon Haunted World. He's kind of the mm -hmm. founders of modern day scientific skepticism. That's a wonderful book to get you started to understand what it means to be a skeptic in this day and age. Uh, again, James Randi, who wrote, um, I mean, he wrote lots of books, but uh, Flim Flam, for example, is his book on critical thinking and skepticism. Um, you can listen to podcasts on critical thinking. You know, the, 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 this podcast, for example, you've given a platform to this kind of this kind of discussion, which is which is fantastic. We need more podcasts to do that. We need um, more people who are involved in science communication to give a platform to these kinds of discussions. Um, but there are there are some podcasts that are devoted specifically to specifically to critical thinking and skepticism. So uh, the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is one that I always talk about. The Geologic Podcast, Body of Evidence Podcast. Um, these are sort of great examples of of um, yeah discussions around critical thinking and and science in the broadest sense uh, look at lectures listen to audiobooks have discussions with your friends and colleagues about you know important decisions and and just and be some introspection is good reflect on how you make decisions on things what one one technique that i tend to use with my students is i call it the new laptop challenge and I get the students to think about the last time that they invested a lot of money in something. It doesn't have to be, uh, you know, something that costs a lot of money, but an important decision, whether it was where they were going to go on holiday, buying a new laptop, a new phone, a new car, 
or uh, you know doing something important that, that that they didn't want to rush into a decision about. So how did they go about making that decision? Did they just go online and pick the first one that they saw? Or did they ask their friends? Did they go to a, a salesman in the store and ask for their advice? And when they took that advice, did they just assume that it was correct? Or did they think, well, the salesman probably knows what they're talking about, but they might have an ulterior motive. When people have to make important decisions, they they tend to collect as much data as possible, just kind of naturally, inherently. And then they'll try and balance all of the data, all of the information they have. That is essentially critical thinking. The, the difference is knowing what are good sources, valid sources of information, and which are not. That takes a little bit of practice and a little bit of skill. But um, th those those are some ways to get started and just venture down the rabbit hole uh, and see, see where it takes you. There's a whole world of science and skepticism and critical thinking out there that will fundamentally change that you wait the way that you make decisions about the world so um yeah venture down the rabbit hole and, and see where it takes you i think it comes back to what you said earlier just educate yourself yeah exactly and and that doesn't mean educate yourself by watching a couple of youtube videos and then formulating an opinion you've got to assume that, you know we've got to we've got to harness this idea of socratic ignorance socrates you know, was the wisest man in the world, not because he knew everything, but he understood the reach of his own ignorance. And that's what it comes back to. Don't assume that you already have the answers. Always doubt your um, your assertions and and uh, scrutinize your own biases and your own assertions. And that's that's the best way that, as you, you, know, you said earlier, in science, we try and falsify our hypotheses. We don't try and confirm them. We set up a method to try and falsify the hypothesis. So try and prove yourself wrong. And if you can't, then maybe you're on the right track. One of my favorite ironies in science, and we've we've brushed up against this a few times, but the the idea of the Dunning-Kruger effect, where mm. you have to like know enough to realize how much you don't know. Sure. And what I love about it is that there have been a few instances of like deliberate research efforts to validate, to test the Dunning-Kruger effect, and none have succeeded in like finding an actual basis for that graph. So the graph itself might be describing a phenomenon that is not evidence-based, but it's a fantastic concept for helping people understand an approach to skepticism and critical thinking. <laughs> yeah. Hashtag irony. <laughs> well nick thanks for coming on you've mentioned a ton of resources we'll make sure that those get put out and we'll put all of your stuff out so that people can can find where to get started but this is a, i think opened up a lot of new angles for us in terms of communicating science and just doing i think a better job of being transparent with with what this industry has going on so thank you no thank you that was a lot of fun thanks for having me Hey guys, Drew and Alex here. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. Before you go, please rate and review the pod on the listening platform of your choice. You can also visit us on our website at www.mopsinmos.com. That's mops, the letter in, mos.com. You can check out the library of podcast episodes, our latest blog entries, any helpful resources, and also sign up for our newsletter. Drew nailed it. Um, just to underline a couple of things, the podcast entries have in-depth show notes on the website. So if you missed anything or you want to read any of the research we talk about, it is all there. You can, at the bottom of the website, sign up with your email and receive future updates from us. 
the blog posts go a little bit more in depth in kind of written form on a couple of topics we get questions about all the time. But most importantly, I just want to ask all you guys, our best way the word gets out is absolutely word of mouth. So tell your friends, tell the people you work with, anybody you think would find it useful. Thanks for spreading the word. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to shoot us an email at either Drew or Alex at mopsandmos.com. Or there's a contact form on the website. Thank you.